Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live at our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, Streamwood, or Huntley. Or check out a service online. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, Wikipedia calls it uh, one of the best ever comedy movies. And I am tempted to agree with them because I have watched Groundhog Day (laughs) probably 20 times now. So Bill Murray, one of my favorite comedic actors, he plays the part of Phil Connors. Phil is an egotistical TV weatherman in Pittsburgh, and he and his crew are sent to the little town of Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, uh, to interview people and to celebrate Groundhog Day. And Phil resents the assignment. He feels like it's beneath his dignity. And so he makes everybody around him miserable the whole day. The end of the day comes. The crew packs up their gear. They're going to go back to Pittsburgh. A snowstorm hits. And they are snowbound in Puxatawney overnight. Uh, Phil is staying at a bed and breakfast when the alarm rings the next uh, morning. The music starts on his, his radio clock. He realizes it's Groundhog Day all over again. In fact, the next day is Groundhog Day, and the day after that is Groundhog Day, and he's repeating the same day again and again and again, and it looks like he's going to spend the rest of his life in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. And we as the viewers, we realize that he is being given an opportunity to change, okay, that he's not going to get out of this loop until he puts away some of his bad boy ways. I mean, he's just a total jerk. He's a a womanizer, he's arrogant, he's selfish, and until he changes, he is destined to repeat Groundhog Day again and again and again and again. Now, this story actually has a parallel in the Bible. It's the Old Testament book of Judges, and I'm going to invite you right now, would you you grab your Bible and turn with me to Judges chapter 4, okay? Judges is the seventh book in from the opening cover, the front cover of your, your Bible. How many of you have ever, ever heard an entire sermon series in the book of Judges? Yeah, didn't think so. Okay, this is, this is going to be a Bible Savvy series. By Bible Savvy, we means that it means that this series tracks with Christ Community Church's daily Bible reading schedule called Bible Savvy. So uh, every week as you read, you will be reading passages, one of which we will have touched upon in the sermon the previous weekend. So this is what's going to go on for the next se- several weeks. Now, If you've not located that schedule in the past and you want to jump on board because becoming a Bible reader, a daily Bible reader is going to change your life. It really will. Uh, You could find the schedule on our website. You could find it on our mobile app. Just download our mobile app and it's right there. Uh, You could find it in a hard copy. If, if you just want a bookmark version of it, it's available at the information counter at each of our five campuses. So let me give you a bit of context, a little bit of historical background for this book of Judges. And this context is going to help you understand why I'm comparing this book of the Bible with Groundhog Day. Okay, Judges may have been written by one of Israel's greatest prophets, Samuel, about the year 1000. And it describes the 350-year period in Israel just before the life of Samuel. 
You know, this period began at the close of the previous book, the book of Joshua. Joshua ended on a high note. Uh, God's people had been delivered from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and led to the very edge of the promised land by Moses. But then Moses passes away and the leadership baton was passed on to Joshua. And it was Joshua's job to conquer the promised land this, this outrageously wicked territory of Canaan, and then to settle God's people in that place as their homeland. Uh, Joshua was highly successful, but then Joshua died. And again, there was a, a leadership vacuum in the newly established nation of Israel. And because there was no point person, because there was no godly role model to look up to, no spiritual life coach to keep the people on track, no vision caster to give them a sense of mission, things got really ugly in Israel. So the book of Judges tells the story of a Groundhog Day cycle that repeats over and over again, six or seven times this cycle over a 350-year period. Now, there are several stages to the cycle. So let me briefly describe these stages. And I guarantee as you read through the book of Judges over the next several weeks, it's going to be very obvious these, these cycles, these stages, you're going to see them for yourself. Let me note in passing too, this week, Pastor Clayton will be teaching a Bible savvy seminar. We do those, do, do those periodically. Uh, it'll be live at the St. Charles campus Thursday night this week, December 2nd. If you want to join online, you could uh, watch the seminar on Zoom. He's covering the book of Judges and Ruth in this Bible Savvy seminar. So five stages to this Groundhog Day cycle in Judges. First stage is disobedience. Okay, the people wander away from God. Uh, the, the, the people don't pay any attention to God's word, the Bible, as they have it, the portion they have at that time. They don't read it. They don't study it. It's not taught. They're not applying it to their lives. And so they wander into all uh, a wide variety of sinful behaviors. They stop worshiping God as the one true living God. They worship other gods, other number one priorities in their lives. Disobedience, which leads to stage two, oppression. You know, it's as if God says, okay, you want to live life without me? Go to it. And God steps back and he removes his hand of protection from Israel. And as a result, enemy armies come in, they invade, they conquer Israel, and Israel has to live under the tyranny, under the oppression of a foreign power. Which leads to stage three, prayer. The people cry out to God in the midst of their misery. They repent of their sins. They say, God, please save us. Stage four, rescue. God sends a deliverer. God sends somebody to kick enemy butt. And the enemy is conquered and Israel is liberated, which leads to stage five, peace. You know, oh, how sweet it is to live once again under the, under the peace and prosperity that come with God's rule. So end of story, right? Everybody lives happily ever after. Well, no, because with peace and prosperity, spiritual apathy sets in. And before long, people have gone back to the beginning of the cycle, disobedience. They wander from God. And disobedience is followed by oppression, and oppression is followed by prayer, crying out to God for help. 
And that prayer is followed by rescue, and uh, with the rescue, with the deliverer, comes peace and prosperity, and then the cycle begins again. It's back to disobedience. Same song, second verse, third verse, and, and so on. Now, now, what is the cause of this repeated cycle? Well, when you get to the very end of Judges, the last verse in the book kind of gives us the root problem that launches people into repeating the cycle again and again and again. So very last verse of Judges, Judges 21 verse 25 says, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. Other English versions translate that last line, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Yikes. You know, isn't this a fitting description of our own contemporary culture? One Bible scholar compares this statement in the closing verse of Judges with our current situation, our situation in our country today. And he writes, every point of view, no matter how bizarre, demands equal respect, authority is despised, feelings count more than facts, moral values are scorned as relics of a more naive epic of human history. Kind of sounds like American culture to me. But this is not merely a description of today's society as a whole. This is also, friends, all too often a description of our own personal lives. Even those of us who are Christ followers. You know, we have this tendency to wander away from God. In the words of an old hymn that we love to sing at Christ Community Church, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so we find ourselves going through this same Groundhog Day cycle that ancient Israel repeated again and again and again. Disobedience, which leads to oppression, a sense of distance from God in our lives. Until the point of misery where we cry out in, in prayer and in repentance and God sends a rescue and we experience peace and prosperity and then thanks to spiritual apathy, we wander again and a new cycle begins. And that cycle can last for a few days in our lives. You know, sometimes that cycle can go on for weeks, it could go on for months, it could go on for years. So how do we break this pattern? Well, the answer is found in the first half of the closing verse of the book of Judges that I read to you a moment ago. Judges 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. No king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Israel had no king, but that doesn't have to be true of us. Not if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus. Jesus is now our king. He's not merely the savior who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. He's the king who rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father on high so that he could reign over our lives. And this is what makes a study of judges such an appropriate a series for this Advent season. I mean, Advent is the season that leads up to Christmas. And I got to be honest with you, when uh, Pastor Clayton and I, when we sat down and we planned out our sermon series for the year, and we decided from this point on through the summer, we're going to be following the Bible savvy reading schedule. We turned to the schedule, and when we saw what was online for December, we said, oh no. You know, not the book of Judges leading up to Christmas. 
spiritual despair in Israel. Merry Christmas. And then we realize, well, wait a second here. What's the theme of Judges? Israel had no king. What's the theme of Advent? Our king is coming. King Jesus. You get it? Good. Good. So today, if your Bible is open to Judges 4, and by the way, we're going to remind you of this truth throughout the course of this series. If you don't have a king, it's going to lead to a messed up life. But Jesus, Jesus can become your king. All right, today, if your Bible's open to Judges 4, our passage describes the third time, third time that Israel repeats the Groundhog Day cycle. And this time around, uh, God sends his people a rescuer when they cry out to him by the name of Deborah. So today's sermon is entitled, Deborah Steps Up. Deborah Steps Up. And there are three lessons about stepping up that we're going to draw from the life of Deborah. If you're taking notes, here's lesson number one. Lesson number one, do what needs to be done. Do what needs to be done. Now, let me begin reading the text at verse 1. Follow along as I read. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. Ehud was the previous deliverer who had rescued the people. Now they've wandered back into disobedience. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth, Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes settled. Stop right there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your word. Did did you see the first three stages of the repeated cycle in these opening verses? Uh, Disobedience, followed by oppression, followed by prayer. The people cried out to God for deliverance, and God sent them. We're coming to the fourth stage of the cycle. God sent them Deborah. Not exactly what they had in mind. See, in the book of Judges, the deliverers were always warriors. Now, it's true they were called judges because their job often entailed settling disputes among people. But their most important responsibility was to rescue God's people from the bad guys. So the judges were all fighting men, with the exception of Deborah. I mean, for starters, to state the obvious, she was a woman. Judges 4, verse 4, which I just read to you, identifies her her, her as somebody's wife. One Bible scholar writes that in the original Hebrew of this passage, seven grammatically feminine words are used to describe Deborah, sort of underscoring the fact. You get the idea. This is a woman. In the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 7, she's referred to as a mother in Israel. So Deborah is not a manly warrior dude. I mean, she's not a female warrior dude either. She's not Xena warrior princess. If you remember that back in the 1990s, okay, it became kind of a cult show uh, following. She was a superhero living in ancient Greece. 
and she would rescue people who needed a defender. And uh, she spawned you know, Xena comic books, and there were Xena uh, video games, there were Xena conventions, but Deborah wasn't a Xena. I mean, her skill was not in wielding a sword or a spear. Judges 4 verse 4 tells us that she was a prophet. In other words, she was skilled at listening to God and then communicating his word to others, which is probably what made Deborah such a good judge. You know, people came to her from miles around with their problems to tap into her wisdom. So, so when verse 4 says that she was leading Israel at the time, please understand, she was leading Israel, but not in a formal governing way, because nobody was leading Israel at that time in that way. Israel, you'll recall, had no king. Everybody was doing their own thing. So Deborah's leadership was an informal, behind-the-scenes kind of influence. But when the people cried out to God for help, for deliverance from the oppression of the Canaanites, Deborah stepped up. Deborah did what needed to be done in spite of the fact that it forced her out of her comfort zone. Now, we'll eventually get around to, you know, what it was that Deborah did. But let me give you just a little more historical background about the situation she found herself in. Okay, Israel was being oppressed at this time by the Canaanites for 20 years. Jabin, a king of the, uh, of the Canaanites, that's a dynastic name. There had been another Jabin 150 years earlier whom Joshua had defeated. But this is a new bad boy, Jabin. And he's got a general, a cruel general by the name of Sisera. And Sisera is equipped with modern military hardware. He's got iron-plated chariots, which was the equivalent in ancient times of tanks. And he doesn't have just a handful of these. He's got 900 of these. So what makes Deborah think she could do anything about this? How audacious of Deborah to step up to do what needs to be done. But again, before we get to what it is that Deborah did, let, let, let me ask you a question. How good are you at noticing and then doing what needs to be done? How good are you at noticing and doing what needs to be done? Let's start with our families. Okay, in my family, we've got this gag going on that we've had for years. Uh, whenever a job needs to be done and it doesn't get done, we blame it on the invisible elves. Okay, they're just not doing their job. So if we got to run out of the house in the evening and leave the dinner dishes stacked dirty in, in the sink, we come home at the end of the night and throw up our hands and go, look, the elves did nothing while we were gone. Okay, what are we paying these guys for anyway? So somebody's got to wash the dirty dishes, right? Or, or at least put the dirty dishes in the dishwasher, in our families. Somebody's got to visit grandma in the nursing home. Now, somebody's got to help the kids with the homework and make sure it gets done, gets done right. You know, somebody's got to spiritually spearhead things in the home and see to it that the Bible is read and prayers are prayed and the family gets in the car and heads to church on a weekend. You know, do what needs to be done. Do what needs to be done. What about in our neighborhoods? Somebody's got to spearhead the block party. If we want there to be a sense of community among our, our neighbors, somebody's got to rake the yard. 
or maybe we should start saying, somebody's got a shovel to drive <laughs> of the uh, elderly neighbor or the single mom neighbor. You know, somebody's got to recognize that a new family moved in and baked the plate of cookies and bring it by to welcome them to the neighborhood. Do what needs to be done. And then there's the workplace. You know, somebody's got to put a stop to the gossip. Somebody's got to say, okay, this ends. You know, somebody's got to patiently deal with the cantankerous customer that nobody wants to talk to. Somebody's got to host a social gathering after work, get everybody together so coworkers get to know each other as friends. Do what needs to be done. And what about church? Somebody's got to volunteer in the nursery. Somebody's got to write that mega check for the year-end gift or even a medium-sized or small check if we're going to reach that goal of caring for people around the world. Somebody's got to serve as a greeter or a care group leader, a care night facilitator or a community group leader or a middle school mentor. Do what needs to be done. Now, as I was ruminating on this point while preparing my sermon, I I noodled a list of excuses that we commonly use to walk right past a job that needs to be done without lifting a finger to do do anything about it. So here's what I came up with, and you may come up with others if you're making a list, but why, why do we walk past the things that need to be done and turn a blind eye to them? You know, one of the reasons I surmised, it's not my job. Okay, this is not, it's not on my job description to do this. Another one, uh, somebody else will do it. Okay, if I don't do it, the job's gonna get done, somebody else will step in. Another reason, uh, I might fail. I'm not really good at this. Another reason, yeah, helping is not my gift mix. <laughs> now, if this one sounds particularly lame, I gotta tell you, it's one of my favorites, all right? Uh, because I'm married to a woman who always does what needs to be done, And, uh, you know, so I just blame it on the fact, well, she's a number two on the Enneagram, all right? She's a helping person, but but that's not my number, all right? What excuses do we use to avoid doing what needs to be done? How about, you know, I've got my own agenda for the day, and this is not on it. I was reading in my news magazine this past week, came across an amusing story, a group of volunteer lifeboat crew were attending the wedding of one of their crew members. And in the middle of the wedding, their pagers went off. And they, they were told there is a situation at sea. There are some kids, three kids on paddle boards that, you know, got swept out too far. They got to be rescued. And so in mass, this crew left in the middle of the wedding ceremony and uh, flew down to their lifeboat seven minutes. They got there, and they went out, and they rescued the kids. But what if they had said, uh, not today? They said, we got a wedding. So what are the excuses we use to walk past the jobs that need to be done? Do what needs to be done. Now, some of the things that need to be done are only going to require an hour or less of our time. Others may require an ongoing commitment. It's a daily thing. It's a weekly thing that's got to be done. Some of the things that need to be done are quite simple. Others are messy or they're exhausting or they're going to cost us something. But do what needs to be done. 
Now, if you've been following Christ Community Church's Bible-savvy reading schedule, you know that this past week we finished the Gospel of John. But a couple of weeks ago, we were in John 13, and we read the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. Remember the story? So in ancient times, you know, people didn't wear socks and shoes. People wore sandals. And, 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 and they, they didn't walk on paved roads or cement sidewalks. They walked on a dirty or in rainy times, muddy trails. And so when they arrived at somebody's house, their feet were a mess and it required a servant to wash their feet. If a family had several servants, it was the lowest servant on the totem pole who got this job. But when the disciples arrived at the Last Supper, there was no servant. And they weren't about to wash their own feet, much less the feet of the other dudes. And so after supper, it required Jesus getting up from the table taking off his outer robe and picking up a towel and filling a basin with water and going around and washing his disciples' feet. And when he finished, what did Jesus say? He said, I've left you an example to follow. You're to do as I've done for you. You're to serve others. You're to do what needs to be done. You get it? Good. Say, follow Deborah's example in this regard, or at least follow the example of your Savior and King Jesus. Do what needs to be done. Second lesson we learn from Deborah, recruit others to join you. Recruit others to join you. Now, go back to Judges chapter 4. We're going to pick up the story in verse 6. So, Deborah wants to rescue God's people from Canaanite oppression. It's a job that's got to be done, but she realizes... She's not a warrior, and this is a job for an army. So she's got to recruit a general. In this case, it is General Barak. Okay, pick it up at verse 6. So Deborah sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Tone intentional, okay? (laughs) Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. Can you believe this Barak dude? <laughs> he, is, he is the general of Israel's army and he's afraid to fight. He refuses to go into battle unless Deborah, a woman, a wife, a mother, accompanies him. And get this, Barak's name means, I'm not making this up, lightning. You know, maybe his mom should have called him molasses or kitten or something like that, you know? So, So Deborah is faced with the challenge of motivating Barak to join her so that Israel can be delivered from Canaanite oppression. You know, Rosalind Carter once said, a great leader takes people where they don't necessarily want to go but ought to be. Okay, that's Deborah. That's Deborah. So Deborah has this challenge of motivating Barak to join her. So once we've begun to do the things that need to be done, friends, listen, we can multiply. We can multiply our impact if we will recruit others to join us. So how did Deborah accomplish this with Barak? 
You know, what can we learn from Deborah about motivating others to join us? Let me quickly note four motivational tactics that I see uh, Deborah employ. Okay, first one, you know, challenge others with God's word. Challenge others with God's word. Look at Deborah's opening line to Barak, middle of verse six. She says, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. And then she recites what God wants Barak to do. So whether you're recruiting your kids for household chores or you're hoping to recruit a friend of Christ Community Church to work in kids' world with you, uh, or you're recruiting a coworker at you know, the place where you work to change the negative tone of things there, is there a biblical principle you can cite to motivate them to get on board? See, even if they're not a believer, it's sometimes cool just to cite something you pulled out of the Bible or from the teaching of Jesus or, or whatnot. But let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, my friend Joe has been tremendously generous to the ministry of Christ Community Church over the years. Uh, I use past tense because Joe retired and he moved out of state this last year. But for years, Joe gave enormous amounts of money to the Lord's work here out of his personal pocket, but also out of the proceeds, out of, out of the success, the profits of his company. Okay, so Joe followed the biblical principle of tithing, giving 10%, and he cited the passage in Malachi where God says, you know, test me in this. If you'll bring me the full tithe of your income, I will open the windows of heaven's storehouse and rain blessing on you. So that's what Joe did. And Joe discovered God was true to his word. As Joe gave generously to the Lord's work, God blessed his business. His business not only prospered, his business was cited a number of times by Forbes as one of the best places in the country to work. Why? Because Joe was following a biblical principle. But the reason I'm reciting a story for you is not just for his personal example. Joe also felt it was important to get others on board. And he would share with other business owners what he was doing and say, why don't you try it? See what God does. You know, I've discovered you can't outgive God. God will, will bless you in proportion to your faithfulness to be a generous person. You see how this works? Okay, when you're trying to motivate others to get on board, what's the biblical principle? And by the way, if you're a parent, it's got to be something more than children obey your parents. That's the principle, do it. <laughs> Here, here's a second tactic that Deborah used to re recruit Barack and others to join her. Uh, offer to accompany them. Offer to accompany them. Barack said, you know, I'm not going to do this unless you go with me. And Deborah replied, okay, I'll go with you. I'll even be the decoy that leads Sisera into your hands. So don't just shovel your elderly neighbor's driveway by yourself. Recruit your kids to help you or get another neighbor. Say, hey, come on, let's go do this together. Don't just send somebody to care night who's struggling in their marriage or is captive to an addiction or grieving a terrible loss. Tell them, I'm gonna go to care night with you. I'll pick you up, let's go. You know, don't just encourage a friend at Christ Community Church, maybe someone in your community group to volunteer for some ministry. You know, you need to roll up your sleeves. You need to serve someplace. 
No, tell them, I'd love for you to join me on the usher team. I'd, I'd love for you to join me on the kids' world team or whatever team you're part of. You know, we've discovered over the years at Christ Community Church the best way to recruit volunteers. And by the way, we are in desperate need of, of volunteers these days because people are starting to come back to in-person services from COVID, but they're not yet necessarily stepping back into volunteer positions they formerly filled. And so we, every single area of our ministry has openings for volunteers right now. And we've discovered the best way to recruit volunteers is not to make on-stage announcements about the opportunity. It's when people who are serving in those various areas say to friends, why don't you join me? Why don't you serve alongside of me? You're the best recruiters there are. Third lesson, third tactic that we pick up from Deborah for recruiting uh, others. Give them a kick in the pants. Now you heard me right. Give them a kick in the pants. When, when Barak continued to hem and fall, Aha, uh -huh. about fighting the Canaanites, Deborah finally said, okay, I'll go with you. But dude, the credit for the victory is gonna go to a non-warrior woman. She, she almost shamed the guy and it worked. Now, I am not advocating shaming, but I'm suggesting that sometimes we, we, we gotta let potential recruits know that their foot dragging, their refusal to get involved is just wussing out. Now, I've got a friend who's really good at this. Uh, he does it very subtly. He doesn't twist anybody's arm. He's, uh, he's a ret retired guy named Roland. And Roland loves to serve with Feed My Starving Children, packing meals. Uh, Roland loves to go on our domestic go team trips. Uh, when there's a tornado, when there's a flood, when there's some place where Samaritan's Purse, our partner, is going, uh, Roland's leading a team and taking him there. He's leading a team back to Louisiana uh, to the Lake Charles area that's been uh, you know, really devastated over the past year. He's leading a team back there in January. But when he recruits you, you know, he doesn't use high-pressure tactics. He just sort of lets you know that, hey, if I as an old retired guy can do this, what's wrong with you? Okay, that's the, sort of the notion you pick up. What's your excuse? So sometimes it helps just to give someone the, the push from behind that they need. Fourth tactic that we learned from Deborah for recruiting others, cheerlead them. Cheerlead them. Uh, Barak goes into battle. God throws Sisera's army into confusion. The enemy soldiers begin to flee. But Barak, who constantly needs a little push from behind, he freezes. He freezes. Look, look at verse 14 of Judges chapter 4. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go! <laughs> Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So the recruiting job is not done once we've convinced people to join us. Now we need to cheer them on. Now we need to cheer them on. So what have we learned from Deborah today about stepping up? Lesson number one, do what needs to be done. Stop walking past things that need to be done. Stop, notice, roll up your sleeves, do it. Whether it's in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, at the church. The second lesson we learned is recruit others to join you. Don't do it on your own. Say to somebody else, hey, help me, help me out. Lesson number three, celebrate God's victories. 
Celebrate God's victories. Now, you're going to be on your own for this one because I've run out of preaching time. Uh, let me just encourage you to read the rest of the story for yourself from the book of Judges this week. There are some really amusing aspects to this story. You know, like when Sisera, the wicked general, when he gets out of his chariot and goes to flee and he's lured into the tent of a woman named Jael who puts him to sleep and then drives a tent peg through his head. This is great stuff for family dinner table reading. You might not want to save it to bedtime, all right? So some great aspects to the story, but I do want to note this about lesson number three. When, you've, when you're done reading about Deborah, you will realize she's not the hero of the story. N neither is Barak, Mr. Lightning. Uh, neither is Jael, who disposes of Sisera, Miss Tentpeg. I mean, the hero of this story, obviously, is God. That's why the entire next chapter of Judges, Judges chapter 5, is a song that celebrates God's deliverance. You know, in a nutshell, God sent a storm in the middle of the dry season when it doesn't typically rain. A storm that transformed the river Kishon, which was typically a trickle at this time of year, into a raging torrent that bogged down Sisera's chariots, his iron-plated chariots. No good now. So here, here's the takeaway, friends. When we finally step up and we do what needs to be done, when we recruit others to join us, God shows up. God shows up. And God does some pretty cool stuff through us. This, this is what makes life exciting when God does stuff through us. Okay, not binge watching your favorite TV show on Netflix. Not taking another trip to Cancun. Not climbing the rungs of the ladder at work. Okay, not taxing your kids to yet another sports or dance or music thing. Nothing wrong with that kind of stuff unless... Unless they eclipse your involvement in doing what needs to be done and recruiting others to join you so you could celebrate God's victories. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you invite us to join you in what you're doing in our world. Forgive us, God, when we get caught in the razzle-dazzle of our culture and we throw our things, ourselves into things that just don't provide the sort of excitement that serving you provides. And so I pray for us, God, as we go from this place today, give us a new determination to follow King Jesus wherever he leads us. Open our eyes to things that need to be done. And with the help of your spirit, God, may we experience great joy in doing them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.